0: welcome from Amsterdam. And thanks for tuning in to a new
1: episode of Game Consultant. Your host of today is Reinout. Oscar. Oscar Clark is the name. The man with the hat. We all know him. We all saw him. We all spoke to him because he has a large network in gaming. But not all I would say a large network. He has also quite some expertise and he has built it up. And although he didn't want to say anything about his age, he mentioned it a bit in a different way. I think he still knows how a modem works. So during our interview, I was actually saying like, okay, I can't actually explain this one to my son. Um, So... Anyways, (laughs) Anyways <laughs> sorry, Oscar. Um, so we had an interview and we covered ah uh, many 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 topics from uh, which events should you go to um, how are you looking at user acquisition um, development I mean, I think we both feel that today young kids, entrepreneurs, whatever can start a game studio and they can do it sort of next to their current jobs and, and test the waters. And if they feel there is something, they can take that plunge and, and get funding. And, and, and what kind of funding, seed funding, and how should you publish? Uh, I did mention user acquisition, but also, um, how is he looking at, uh, the gaming industry as it is in 220? Anyways. Thursday, March 19th, a new episode, episode 11 of Game Consultant with Oscar Clark. So, I do work with Anchor, that's a pretty good app for your podcast, and um So I sent people a link before we do the interview, and uh, Oscar was uh, very much on time. And then we're sort of live as of that moment. And and I have that with everyone, and you keep on talking with each other about, uh, well, how are you doing? uh, But, you know, that first minute and 20 seconds, um, it was just fun. Uh, Normally, I would take out the introduction and then have the interview, but... You know, um, I have to share this with you. Oh, it's funny. Cool.
0: Actually, I can't, find the, um, I can't find the questions email anyway. Have... It's not a problem.
1: No, it's, it's uh, Oscar, it's about how you turn up with Unity, what are you doing today, how are you looking yeah. at gaming, the usual. Yes. But, um, I mean, if you want to go certain places, I mean... Uh... Uh, you can go anywhere. I've been in the industry 22 years. I exactly. started
0: out with dial-up modems. I, I was playing online games in 1984 on my coupler modem on my apple IIe. so basically i live breathe connected gaming um and have done for my whole life cool. um but i actually started out trying to make board games and uh, role-playing games and realized i could never make any money yeah. <laughs> yeah, except think. now he said now you can <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> well no worries i mean um I'm, I'm, I'm gonna start it i just do a quick yeah, intro it. Yep. And then uh, we'll take it away and uh, there will be somewhere an end after half an hour but we'll find it where it is. And uh, otherwise you I'd say just... half an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've talked to just me for longer yeah. than half an hour. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't think mental. you've ever
1: talked to me <laughs> yeah. less than half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, thanks, uh, Oscar. <laughs> go. Yeah. Go away. All right. <laughs> yeah. There we go. And that was a fun beginning of what was 60 minutes of so much information, so much experience, insights, vision. Um, It was fun listening. Um, Did I have to ask questions occasionally? Did I saw the 30 minutes range uh, go by? Yes, I did. Did I stop him? No way. Um, I hope you enjoy. Go sit down, lay back, listen. Let the man talk. Okay, guys, uh, today we have Oscar, Oscar Clark. Some do recognize him, the man with the hat. He just is telling me that he's longer in gaming than I am. So the first question is, Oscar, introduce yourself. But I definitely want to hear the same story I just heard. What was (laughs) your (laughs) your first gaming experience? So, oh, there's so many
0: ways to start. It depends on where you want to start with computer gaming or, 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 or you know, physical gaming. So, yeah, I, uh, I've been in the industry for 22 years, but I first had my interest in computer gaming in 1984 with my Apple II. Uh, in fact, I was doing uh, online games. I had a couple of modem, so I was able to play games like Shards, which is a text-based yeah. multiplayer game. You can you imagine that in 1984? <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm I'm more intrigued about you say a couple of modems. Yeah, so coupler. It's a so a coupler modem. It's not it's not two modems, although it sounds like oh, yeah. it. Yeah, it's a coupler modem was this thing where you took your 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 physical handset from your phone, yeah. which is wired into the wall. You then put oh. the rubber suckers yeah. around the two ends of the headset, <laughs> and it literally worked on the sound. So you know that kind of funny sound that you um, hear yeah. about with dial-up modems that was how it worked
1: um, you know if if i had to explain this to my son i think we already stopped by by the moment that you say a regular phone yeah so he would look you, at his mobile and said how how the f would you do that yeah exactly
0: how on earth would you put a regular phone into that but yeah so old school ancient history. I mean, I, I mean, I was really into gaming anyway. My uh, uncle um, got me into D and D when I was ten. Um, now, bearing in mind how old I am, that hadn't been out that long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I was doing that for as a kid, and I I was basically enjoying trying to um, make board games and uh, uh, and role playing games, uh, going around tours around the UK. I even won a couple of little tiny. I, when I say awards, it's like ridiculous. I, I I run these little kind of best of shows in these shows that you 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 took your games to, and there might be yeah. two hundred people in in the event. It was nothing, but it's still yeah. kind of nice. Um, but yeah, so I I made my first pitch for a game when I was eighteen. Um, we basically went to Rainbird and said, look at our game, and they said, great, come back when you made it. <laughs> <laughs> and my coder uh, ended up going, and he was—he's basically the lead coder on Oracle's payroll system now. So, you know, he, he found a much more lucrative job than I ever would. Um, but yeah, hes hes, um, uh, he's a good guy. Um, actually, ended up being my best man, but that's another subject. But yeah, so sure. I, I properly got into games as an industry when I was um, 27. Oh, goodness me! Uh, and that was 22 years ago. So yeah, you can work out the match. Yeah, it's more than that now. Hang on. Anyway, uh, not far off that map. Um, But yeah, so I ended up uh, uh, working for Bridge Telecom, making uh, an online gaming service. Well, sorry, running uh, is probably the best way to describe it. I came on as a marketing manager. And before you knew it, I was designing the platform and running the team and running community. So literally, yeah, I've been running online gaming experiences (laughs) since 1998.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. then the, the question would be, because you said, like, yeah, I was the marketing manager and I'm I'm asking more people, was it all along a plan to start working in gaming? Did you have a degree that would lead you to gaming? No, or- I, I, I
0: kind of just, because I spent so much time playing games, I ended up um, basically screwing up my uh, A-levels and that made it difficult for me to get a university course. So I ended yeah. up going to a technical college, Would you believe. Yeah. um and did a, a sandwich course which is basically a work placement and education course uh on business and finance um yeah. now it was the equivalent so it's not that bad uh, and i made up for it later i got my um a diploma in marketing which is a postgraduate so uh, you know i right. made up for it in the end but it was uh yeah i i was kind of going well what do i do a bit lost really Thought I know yeah. I can talk fairly well. I understand a little bit of psychology. Marketing seemed like a plan. Yeah, and yeah, ended yeah. up as a, a marketing manager doing things like recipe management software. Can you imagine that? Jesus. Yeah, and the pension software, running pension systems. <laughs> <laughs> did it I, pay uh, well I, uh, yeah <laughs> the, the interesting thing though is i actually I was even a marketing manager for a, a sap consultancy so if anyone's done any of the most boring technology in the planet it's probably the people do, who do these big enterprise resource planning software tools um yeah. and i was the marketing manager for one of those agencies that, that, that they they charge fortunes i mean actually fortunes to do this stuff but what's yeah. interesting about all of this stuff is it really helped me understand and get a grounding in how do you work, write requirements? You yeah. know, what is it that people need and how do you, you then translate a need into a system, into delivery? Yeah. So, that, you know, as much as I complain that how boring my previous jobs were, or no, and that's probably little unfair, it's amazing how much fun you can have even in something as boring as pensions. Um,
1: but... But all those experiences led to <clears throat> right now almost, uh, well, not almost, more than 20 years, years. in gaming. Yeah. <laughs> and that means, yeah, well, that means you've, you've seen gaming. I mean, uh, yeah,
0: I've, I've basically been on the leading edge of online gaming since it yeah. almost started. Um, and it's an odd position because obviously, you know, if, you, if I'd have been doing kind of direct making games myself from, the, from day one, I'm sure I'd have done some you know cool stuff. Uh, and people have forgotten about things like wireplay. You know, when you have a community where I think it was nineteen ninety nine when we first hit a thousand current users. Now at the time that doesn't you know, nowadays that's in nothing. I mean, you know, you, you don't even start it if you haven't got a thousand current users. You haven't even got testing going if you haven't got a thousand current users. But in nineteen ninety nine, having a thousand current users was one of the biggest services in the world. Yeah. it may have been the biggest at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't know that. I mean, probably M player at the time was slightly bigger. Um, but then you've got things like um when I moved into 3 the mobile operator a little bit later, um we were doing the first 3G games and we were starting to play with app stores before anyone knew it. We we were being told by people when I was when we had games running on phones, we were told by people why would anyone want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean seriously, <laughs> no one, no one thought there was any point in ever having a smartphone. Why yeah. would anyone want a smartphone? Why would anyone want a camera on a phone? And one of the biggest lessons I think of three was yes, I, I learned a huge amount about running an app store, about actually doing um, you know clever things that retail teams would do normally that still aren't being done to this day. Um, now it was in premium pricing era. Um, But I learned about, you know, um, basically variable pricing. I learned about um, setting up player lifecycle-based pricing structures. I learned about, you know, running sales in a way that grows audiences Um, because I could. And I'm very lucky that, you know, I was in the right position so that by 2005, we had the most um, successful mobile operator in the world in terms of revenue per user. And yeah. that's not just guessing. We had data. So someone accidentally leaked one of the other telco's data, we could work it out. Yeah. And that's, that's to me, that's like, where would you ever have been given a chance to do something that was groundbreaking, different, get to meet amazing people, you know, you know, like Ilka, like uh, Chris Larry. I mean, the list of the, of the people yeah. who are like the big cheeses nowadays who I got to meet, you know back in you know, 2001 2002 yeah it's amazing you know actually 2003
1: it's, it's, i think with some of them yeah it's funny there's a tv commercial here in holland um it's sigo it's a broadband broadband internet deliverer yeah and uh, there's a guy actually saying uh, he's in a, in a in a bar with some friends and there's a guy with a very old telephone and they're making fun of him saying like so you can be actually bored 24/7 you're an idiot. Yeah. And then the next scene is that he's in the rain together with his girlfriend outside in front of a, what we call a video store where you can actually pick up uh, uh, videotapes. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and he's saying to her, it's like, what? Online videos? And, and then it turns into fast speed internet and it's downloading like in, in, in a second you have a complete game. <clears throat> and, and, and this guy is telling him that and then he has all those visions from the past and then he's saying like, okay, that could be, that could be something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes uh, oh, learned from... It's a magical the process.
0: That, um, I mean, yeah. a, the thing is that we were talking about what you could do with mobile when I was still at, at uh, Wireplay. Um, you know, yeah. so we're talking about the year 2000. Um, and I think it was 2000. I can't remember. I can't remember years. Yeah. But I remember doing a plan about content delivery over TV, using the set-top box, using that yeah. over mobile. We're even talking about streaming. In fact, I actually ended up working for Real Networks um, yeah. for a very brief period of time, um, who were the streaming gods of the era. Um, yeah. And Game House came out of that. Um, yeah. So it's interesting how, you know, a, a lot of what we would we do now by just, you know, it's just obvious. We were thinking about as far away ago as that. We were thinking about what could it be. Done. Now, the technology couldn't keep up with an experience that would be good for players. Don't get me wrong. But we learned lessons about what could be possible as early as that.
1: Yeah. And so the setup box. Um, I've been hearing a lot. So we have Philips over here. Yeah. And they have actually been contacting me so many times. Can we do something with the set box? <laughs> I mean, when did it die? When did finally someone... Or has it been replaced? No, it's not
0: dead yet even. It's because the set box is a brilliant way of providing DRM for big television companies. Yeah. So the thing that's going to kill it off permanently is... Uh, the are not needing them anymore. So, you know, the skies of this world, the uh, the cable companies of this world still rely on the set top box. Now, they've improved them to a large extent, but essentially, Netflix means I don't need them anymore. No. So I got rid of my, um, my cable subscription, my satellite subscriptions. I just have, uh, you know, a little stick that goes in my telly and I watch, you know, streaming services. I don't watch live services anymore. And I would argue yeah. this, is the, this is the evolutionary process. You have big companies yeah. who enable new experiences and then they stick to those experiences. They hold on to them and they, yeah. they start using them so they become a barrier to experience. And then they get you know, their, their economy, their, kind of, um, their cash flow decimated because they hold out too long. Yeah. And, and this is the sort of cycle of the technology route. You know, I think we're we're going to see the same thing with cable providers. When 5G or if 5G can get the ubiquity it needs, because at the point you've got a 5G connection, as long as that 5G yeah. connection is in your area, you don't need broadband anymore, folks. And yeah. that is a magic thing. Now, obviously, there's the issues with there, and I, I've been in the heart of, uh, of, of telco, so I can see how easy telcos trying to do things like charging for data its that yep. like the most insane thing you know the I whole know lot. the whole the whole thing about uh, consumer experience is you've got to target and charge on things that the consumer understands now yep. do you know how much data you're using when you use google maps versus uh, an email it's it's there's no most people haven't got the slightest clue <clears throat> and neither should they have they shouldn't need that no. And it's not yeah. even related to the cost that the companies are actually incurring, in, to a certain extent, to a certain extent. But what yeah. what does matter is the availability of you know that data resource. You know, that demand on it is important. Yeah. <clears throat> but
1: concurrency is more important.
0: Anyway, so I bore into this sort of stuff. I no, 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 no.
1: That, that's interesting because um, cause during, <clears throat> I mean, so we're now seeing increase. We're seeing increase of revenues that actually is going to my belief, and besides the fact that we have coronavirus and it could actually be exploding, whatever. Uh, But if you look at the last three to four years, I see an increase. And um, then everyone is saying, yeah, the industry is growing because better games, blah, 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 blah. Uh, It's part of it. But I also think it's down to the fact that I can actually go uh, on a holiday and I don't have to worry that Sebastian, my son, is playing games um, <clears throat> I even don't have to say be on, on the wi of uh, of the wifi of the hotel eh? yeah. at all times it doesn't even matter anymore and so he has internet all over the place yeah. it's fast um, although I have to say that the Instagrams and the YouTubes are they, 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 those are the drainers Absolutely, when it yeah. comes to yeah <laughs> um, but the games are nuts
0: no, and games generally not I mean, most, most no. games don't need a lot of data some of them so there's a, there's a problem because of the scale of some of these games. So games on phones that can be in the gigabytes now. Um, yeah. But the maximum limits of the download uh, on the app stores are still relatively low, you know, hundreds of K. Uh, I say relatively low, hundreds of megs, sorry. Hundreds of megs is still decent for most games to get started. But a lot of the activity is going on in the background. Um, and if you're downloading that, Initially, in one big burst, you have this terrible delay before you get into the game. But increasingly, developers are being smart about that and they're, they're packaging the, what you need to start the game and then they're delivering additional material over time. So, as long as yeah. you're doing that sensibly and you're thinking about the consumer experience, then it shouldn't use up that much data in the long term. Um, but, like I say, it depends on the game you're playing.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, Tell us a bit about Unity, the, 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 the rise of a company that first, actually, if I think about it, David was always standing at those yeah. conferences at a table, handing out flyers.
0: Well, it kind of starts with me when I, was, I left Sony. So I was a home architect at Sony for their virtual world PlayStation <coughs> home. And the weird thing about that yeah. is that that was a game engine that developers were making games for as well as being a virtual world. I mean, not saying it was the best tech game engine in the world. There was It was actually remarkable. it good, was an engine. Yeah. But it was effectively an engine. Um, and uh, we were actually running a freemium game service and stuff like that, effectively, um, on console, which is weird. Um, so I leave, li- I leave, uh, leave Sony because they made a decision they weren't going to put home on PlayStation 4, which I still think was a mistake, but I can kind of understand it. Um, and I start consulting, and I'm working with a, a Chinese um, social game platform at the time doing evangelism. And uh, I got to meet uh, a guy called um, uh, UC uh, Larkin, who's, uh, who's a fantastic guy, um, and um, the, his team who were doing um, rewarded ads. I mean, it's a bit more complicated because <laughs> we were also doing um, gameplay recording. Rewarded ads. Uh, yeah. but we were doing these reward, rewarded ads, which at the time was pretty new. There was I think Ad Connery and Bungle, but um Applify, this company, uh were basically um, you know.
1: We're talking two eight, two nine?
0: Uh no, we're talking no, we- twenty fourteen actually. I think I think it was twenty fourteen.
1: Oh yeah, with fungal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that that month, yeah, 2013 yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay. basically,
0: yeah. you know, um UC and David uh got on quite nicely, it turned out. Um, i happened to be in the unity offices uh, my friend Julian invited me and um uh she was running the uh, global game jam um not global game jam, the the nordic game jam sorry um and she had a whole bunch of developers in the unity offices and she wanted me and you to talk to them about the games industry which is lovely um and, and all, all of the Unity folks were at, I mean, knew a lot of them anyway but they were all acting a bit weird about me and I couldn't quite work it out and I, I didn't think anything of it two weeks later UC told me we were being bought by Unity and it turned <laughs> out everybody <laughs> in Unity knew and none of the people at Amplify had a clue uh, and it yeah. was fantastic because it was two companies who had exactly the same personality in terms of like entrepreneurial spirit desire for excellence but also you know really caring what happens to game developers. Um, yep. And so it came, you Kind know, of, I just went along with the package. You know, I was consulting as well. I've, I've done this a lot where I I have a main client like Unity or like Apple before that, where I spend half my time and I, I evangelize on behalf of their service. Um, and yep. I do consultancy in the background because I think that unless you're doing, talking about it isn't good enough. So yeah. I'm always playing and, and working on things of my own or helping other developers, So always learning, continuously interested in learning. And so I had this fantastic position where, for basically four and a half years, or was it five years? Oh, no, I think four and a half years, um, I got to stand on stage for one of the most interesting companies in the world, helping developers basically you know, access the ability to make games, regardless of their size and scale. And to be able to make games of the same quality, you know, dependent on their talent and skill, that's a fantastic position to be in. And I was talking about how to make games commercial because obviously, with all this background of like development strategy, running live operations, uh, understanding data, um, it turns out that's quite useful. So I got to think about anything I wanted to in terms of what did I think was going to be useful. I listened to a lot of developers about what they wanted to hear. And I got to come up with a program of like, here, yeah, look, have you talked about this? So obviously we talked a lot about rewarded ads and how they were used, but it meant that I ended up spending more time thinking about how game design is affected by the way you monetize, and also yeah. how longevity and um, player lifecycle is affected by that. And I had a lot of background from my previous roles I could bring into that. So I ended up writing a book, uh, Games as a Service, uh, which was uh, yeah. you know going down quite well. In fact, the
1: fact oh, that the first... Hold on, hold on, oh, yeah. <clears throat> hold on. Games as a service. Yes. I got the question yesterday. Oh, yeah. And, and um, I completely didn't understand exactly what it does mean. I think it, 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 the, the definition is different to people, but what, what are you seeing as game as a service? So games as a service? What,
0: I, what I think of as a game as a service is a game that, where most of the focus is after the launch. So yeah. we, this is one of the areas I specialise in nowadays, which is basically helping teams understand, yes, you want to make a great game, and that's fine. And if you're going to make a hyper-casual game, then that's probably all you need to do, and you've got to f- work on the efficiency of making it. But if yeah. you're making a game where you want retention, you've got to think not only about the mechanic and how extensible it is and how much fun it can be, but also the context, by which I mean the reason to play, and the metagame. And I separate those two things out because I think people confuse what a metagame is. If you yeah. talk about the context of play and then the metagame, you can see a progression in layers from an original idea of a game, I, how, what do I do when I play it, the reason why I play it, and the reason why I keep on playing it. Because we don't keep play on playing it because of the narrative in most cases because narratives run out. We keep on playing because of the social context, because of the way it fits our daily routine, because it has some kind of shareability or or engagement that that separates us from the sort of routine and mundane. That is what makes a hobby. That's what makes a a passion, is that longevity. Um, So when I talk about games as a service, it's the business of making a game work longer term to deliver better value for players. Now, yeah. the trouble we have at the moment is that there's a lot of people who are doing it in a, dare I say, half assed way. Um, I'm not a fan, personally, where you charge someone yeah. up front and you continue to charge them within the game. I don't yeah. think it's yeah. generally a good business.
1: I agree. No,
0: now, I can see reasons why you would do it. And, you know, there's a lot of people who can't give up the. the um, the pay upfront model. I, I totally understand that. That's their choice. But we've seen time yeah. and time again, proof upon proof upon proof, if you make a game that's good, people want to play it. So if you can yeah. create no barrier to entry and create value in the game, ongoing value in the game through events and promotions and activities and community and content releases, all this kind of momentum. And, if you can do that in a trustworthy, predictable, authentic, passionate way people want to give you their money because they want those things um and and the wanting is the important part here it's anyone who's trying to trick people anyone who's trying to sort of you know bait and switch um anyone who's trying to sort of um you know uh hide content that should be in the game inside you know randomized boxes and make people charge for them without telling what the ratio is that's not an authentic relationship with the player. Yeah, And that's what I'm talking about with games and service.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good. Because uh, then, then I know I completely took it the wrong way yesterday. No, it's fine. Thank you. fine. Uh- <laughs>
0: yeah. But it's easy because there's so many bad examples. And, you know, you can blame games and service at the moment. There are a few people blaming games and service as some of the PC and console uh, experiences, which aren't great um but actually i would argue it's not the game of the service bit that's wrong well there is a balancing issue it's the fact that they're also charging up front you know 60 dollars to get a game and then you hide half of it behind you know a paywall as well i don't feel like i'm a valued player i feel like i'm a cash cow for someone's company yeah
1: Yeah. and if it's it's good good, i am in the end I, i have the urge of paying anyways because uh, I want to speed up or uh, I'm, I'm engaged. Yeah, I mean, you've so... got to give people reasons
0: yeah. to, to to, pay and, and, you know, to care about paying. You've got to get people to engage. But, you yeah. know, I think most people understand if you're producing a million dollar, multi-million dollar game experience, particularly, but some games are less than that. I, mean, a lot, I work with a lot of games that have a smaller budget. Yeah. Um, if you're working on a game that costs these, in, you know, these intrepid... in developers money time etc well they want to be able to feed their kids at the end of the day they want to be able to you know be able to go on a holiday occasionally maybe and most developers indie developers i
1: know can't (laughs) no i mean if they can pay the rent and and have food then uh, they're happy exactly coming to that um i always ask people like no let me me put it um, it differently um i think you're a complete idiot if you want to start a gaming studio or a gaming startup. Absolutely. I'm, I'm um, one of those idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess we all are. But now there is this young generation coming. And although I see that they have more opportunities to get a spot somewhere in the top 10 because of new insights, new technologies, um, if, 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 what advice would you give uh, someone of 18, 20 years old, uh, passionate about gaming and thinking, you know what, um, either I'm a dropout of school or I have that one degree, I just want to follow my heart.
0: Yeah, I mean, I what think, is your advice? You know, I, so, make sure you've got a backup plan. I mean, that, that's the first thing. But, I think what you need to think about is, if you really love games, is it playing you love or is it making you love? And they are different things. Yeah. There is nothing worse Sorry, There is only one thing worse than making games, and that's not making games. If that's how you feel, and if that's how you feel, that's why you should be in the games industry. I mean, there are much better ways of making money. There are much better opportunities out there. However, there is no discipline that combines all of these skill sets and all of the different combinations of personality type like games. You know, Being able to have yeah. you know, art, science, engineering, maths, English, writing, you know, you know, emotion, psychology, monetization, e- economics in one discipline, that's crazy. Um, yeah. But thinking about games simply is like, look at what you love in terms of gameplay and try to see if you can find one, one mechanic, one thing, and try to see if you can make it fun. Then think no. how you no. can make it extensible. So, what, you know, I can, something like a game like Plank or uh, Skyrest. So plank, you hold the screen and you release it. That's all you do. But in doing that, the, the plank grows and it stops growing upon release and then it, it falls down and you go over it. Why is that g- great? Because everything is down to how long I hold the screen. As a player, I am empowered, I have autonomy. And the results are the results. So I'm in control of the outcome. So it becomes fun because you change the distances between different uh, objects that you've got to connect to. So there's variability. How quickly I do it, how many choices, how many mistakes I make, all these things can be really interesting. So think about simple interactions and why they become interesting first. And then what emotions you try to convey when you do that. You know, how yeah. do you tell a story? How do you? And I think building up your game in layers over time and just experiment, make a hundred different silly mechanics, make a thousand of yeah. them. The more you fail yeah. in that process and the more you assess what it is you've done and why it works or doesn't work, the better you get to understand what's happening. And you don't have to be a coder to enjoy this. You can sit there with you know, bits of paper and play board games and move things around. You don't have to be an artist, although obviously it helps if you draw things in a way that communicates ideas. Most people can communicate. A classic example for me is I am the worst drawer in the world. I cannot draw, Uh, and yet I managed to draw these triangular shapes to explain to a a concept artist the body shape I wanted to see for a particular avatar. So use what you can do, but just try to communicate Uh, with other people who are around you who also want to make games with you. Learn, try, test. And I think really breaking down games and just doing it is the most important thing. You know, yes, you can go and get a degree nowadays, and that's amazing. I never thought you'd be able to get a degree. I've got no problem if you want to go do that, fantastic. But the key thing is keep making games because that's the best way to learn.
1: And and to start, really to start. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I'm seeing too many indies that suddenly give up their day job uh, because yeah, they 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 have the vibe. And it's also guys that were in a company, huh, in a gaming company that then want to do something on their own. I always advise to have a sort of an an, an intermediary period where maybe in the evening you start working with quote unquote your friends or colleagues and and see if you can get something rolling see if there's team synergy see if there is output and if that is then really start creating a studio as you can call it i mean that's
0: why i'm so jealous uh, of um, um kids had i had unity or something like that been around when i was a kid when i was like you know 50s well in, in 1984 had i had tools like that i would have been just ecstatic um I mean as it happened I did try coding and I didn't I did a terrible job I realized I was never going to be any good at it uh hence I became a manager um but the the point is that just by having those tools available it's amazing how quickly you can make things that are expressive and simple and, and and out there but it's getting the same problem is really always the case the tools can change the tools can improve all that does is it makes the end goal further away. We we happen to have greater tools. It democratizes development, but at the same time, what it does is it means that the market is busier, more mature. So innovating becomes you know the challenge rather than just learning the raw skills. Well, yeah. although you've got yeah. to learn the raw skills too. So all the challenges change every time. But I think you're right. Being able to spend time aside... Um, for example, if you're at university, what a fantastic time! Because you can do it without risk. Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd had that. Um, I I haven't. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't have a choice actually, because I was paying my way. So actually, a lot of kids do have to work, and so they don't get that spare time that a lot of you know university students get nowadays. But more than that, yeah. you know, still finding a way to take time. It's amazing how much time you can take. Uh, as much as you want to watch that ne- next Netflix series, maybe if you could put an hour aside a day or two aside a day, just putting paper press types together, yeah. you yeah. might find you're actually finding it more useful and more valuable. That's what en- ended up with me going around to these small conventions, showing off my games and learning, you know, basically, cutting kind of teeth in games. game design. Which, um,
1: which, um, which, company which company have you been following, you been following since start... And has become one of the main gaming companies today. Well, the
0: obvious one has got to be, um, uh, well, let's say, a person, Ilka. Uh, I'm very lucky <laughs> yeah. that I know Ilka uh, reasonably well. Um, back in, um, oh, I think it was 2003, 2002, we actually um, um, gave Sumia, the company he was running at the time, uh, a check for something like $25,000. Uh, to have his game on our uh, our deck, the three G mobile phone uh, experience. Yeah. Um. So he won this competition we ran. I'd forgotten about this, and obviously Samir was bought by Digital Chocolate, and then um, Ilka left Digital Chocolate, set up Supercell. Um. He had a fantastic talk in 2011 about the failure of um of Gunshine. Uh, i I got to yeah. chat with him there. And then the next thing I know, we have Supercell. I'm on stage at a Supercell event in Helsinki that they round for the development community. And Ilka is reminding me of this story. I think that's that's <laughs> one of the. A, that, okay, that's a very self aggrandizing story to a certain extent. But that's just what the reason for that, though, the reason I'm mentioning it is not because you know, it's Ilka and Supercell. Supercell are obviously one of the most amazing companies on the planet. Um, yeah. But this is a. This is the a sense of the people. Someone like him are so genuine, so you know human, so nice, capable, interesting, etc. Um, that it's easy to lose sight of that when you see a massive company like Supercell now. Yeah. And yeah. you know, almost all of these companies, um I can trace back some connection to nowadays some of the earlier days so a lot not you know like Robbio for example I put the first um proper Robbio game called Darkest Sphere up and then of course they're now this massive giant (laughs) um I've got to have this taste of a lot of these people and the people behind it and to a large extent the ones who've been around forever haven't really seemed to change that much their their opportunities have changed don't get me wrong of course they have But they they still seem to be the same genuine people who have a passion and love for making games. And I think that's really at the heart of all of this.
1: Why Finland? Well, why Finland? It's not
0: just Finland, but Finland obviously came out as a Nokia. Nokia was such an amazing force for mobile. And um, a lot of people who were involved in Nokia um, games in particular went on to make games themselves. But it was also, it provided this Actually, if you look at it, it's, it's kind of a combination in my head, whether this is true or not. But what I see is you've got Nokia and you've got the festival Assembly. Now, ironically, UC yeah. was one of the people behind Assembly as well. Assembly is where a lot of people who were really interested in like the, the demo scene um, and were really interested in making stuff and really interesting games got together. And that fertilized yeah. an amazing opportunity. Combine that with the techist kind of uh, funding they've got in Finland, yep. then you can see, yep. of course, Finland's a perfect place. You've got a whole bunch of people, lots of focus on tech and coding, lots of people who know each other through a mutual connection through games. You can see how that that, yeah. that environment is very conducive to success.
1: Uh, uh, oh, yeah, exactly. That I, I, I've come to know Finland as where the quote unquote indie community. Um, was always very much in talks yeah. with each other. Um, uh, the failures were discussed, uh, but also the helping. Yeah. Um, and, and that together, let, I think uh, in the end, take us back then what is business yeah. Finland today has driven that industry, that gaming industry to, 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 yeah, to the great success they're having. So a lot of people are saying in Finland it's happening. Um, what is your take on um, what's, happening right now? what's happening right now? I mean, we we see India coming up. We see Latin coming up. We see, well, a lot of people are targeting China, but it's not that easy. If you look at publishing your game, I mean, everyone wants to have the world play their game. Um, any advice on how to publish? Well,
0: I mean, again, that's that's a ever-moving feast, isn't it? I think essentially the, the beauty of the, the mobile era, uh, and it's not just limited to mobile, because obviously things like Steam and Epic are, are there for the, the PC side, but the, the, there's been a liberation from the constraints of having to go through a publisher. But at the same time, over the, you know as, as the competition, because anyone could potentially release a game, um, has, has gone up, we've, we've seen that actually publishing is also a skill. Um, so having somebody who understands marketing, who understands uh, – b- by the way, when I say marketing, I don't just mean traditional marketing. I actually mean the whole – I think of marketing as a, a, a overview of all of the disciplines. So user acquisition yep. is a specialist form of marketing in my head, in my description, uh, because user acquisition is about using data to optimize targeting of direct response advertising. It's all about reducing the friction between sharing an idea with somebody and then having the game on your on their device. Uh, marketing in general is obviously wider than that because we're looking at brand building, we're looking at well, uh, you know, kind of general kind of awareness, but that's a lot less um, measurable than the user acquisition aspects. So a lot of people have ignored that part yeah. of of the business. I think that's a shame because there's lots of opportunities around building up company brands which are missed. As a result, um, it's hard to make mm-hmm. a, a game with the values of Pokemon when you don't do those wider marketing pieces. Angry Birds has done an amazing job of building up a wider brand, you know, an actual sort of social zeitgeist brand. Um, but that's a rare example yeah. of where mobile has actually managed to pull that off. Um, yeah. but essentially this understanding the full range of what happens, you know uh, the effectiveness of press has gone down dramatically, um, but that doesn't yeah. mean it's not important for other aspects of what your game does. Social media is obviously exploding in its importance and particularly influences the, the need to engage them. Yeah. All of these are skills, all is about networking, all is about connecting with people, and being able to find the best way to get people talking about your game. Still to this day, the best method of getting somebody to download your game is word of mouth. So understanding (coughs) all of that is a skill. And it takes money. And so if you are starting now and you want to publish your game, you're either going to have to learn those skills, find someone who does them, or find a publisher. But you want to find publishers who are partners, who are actually invested in what you do, are committed to the success of the game and that's not as easy as it sounds community
1: Community. community i
0: consider as part of the sort of wider principle of social network so i have a so as part of live operations the way i look at this i look at the game experience and the marketing experience as two connected venn diagrams if you like they're kind of two connected loops so i've got to run events and promotions well if i'm going to run an event I want people to find out about it. So I want the in-game community to know about it. But I also want to use social media to let people who are not in the in-game community know how exciting things are going on in the game. And I might even use material that's part of that event. Maybe there's a new bit of content. I might include that in the updated version of my campaign for the user acquisition. So my videos that I'm going to use to get installs will include references to current live activity. So I, to me, community yeah. social media are essentially two sides of the same face. They might be different people, but they're all about your ability to communicate to your audience and importantly to listen to your audience. Yeah. And uh, looking, at the, yeah. looking holistically at your game as a live, living, operated experience that has an audience... That your that audience will be in different channels. Some of them will be in games. Yeah. Some of them will be out of games. Some of them will be wider context than that. Uh, and really, that's what I do as a consultant is really try and help people understand: Hey, what's does their game work? How do they uh, make money out of their game? And are they doing that in the best possible way? But then, importantly, how do you operate that game? How do you manage it? In fact, we're about to um, you know focus much more on. A concept around the idea of um, live ops as a service, but I can't talk about that just
1: yet. No. And um, a vital part getting players. So, the user acquisition um, how many articles have we been reading? It's, it's broken, it's expensive. Um, there are a lot of uh, companies that want to do the user acquisition for you. Um, there's a lot of fraud um, it feels like uh, a, a tricky path um, if there is a company and they're making some money they have some organic growth they have some funding um, how how should you approach user acquisition because everyone wants to grow its so game
0: I have a little um, method I use Throughout the whole process, which is not this is nothing special, a lot of people use it. It's a technique called personas. So, personas is about understanding who your audience is. And my, my play on it is my primary persona are the people I make the game mechanic for, my secondary persona are the people I make the context loop for, uh, and the tertiary persona are the people I make the metagame for. Now, the reason for that is that. You need to have one clear idea of who it is who's going to play the game and make the game for them. But if you want to expand the potential scale of the game, you need to think about the wider audience. And again, that's why you think about these three different kind of personality uh, categories. And what I'm looking for there is the sometimes I look at demographics, I'm less interested in demographics, although it does help you come up with a kind of idea of where they will be and who they will be. Uh, I think about... um, the um, the behavior of those players and how they work in context of the game, but also what they do outside of gameplay. Now, that's the bit that's important here because when you're looking at user acquisition, you need to know where players are. Now, we're very lucky in games because players are where we want them to be, i.e. playing games. But we've got to get them from that game over there to our game over here. So... We can do amazing things with things like Facebook where we can target by looking at every single bit of behavior of somebody who's playing a game like ours and we can talk to them directly. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, We can do that with all sorts. Facebook's not the only way to do that. There are lots of others and obviously, you know, uh, the use of things like um, rewarded video, uh, all that kind of stuff can be great, especially if the game that is rewarding is giving good value to the player. Anyway. So, yes, you have a direct response. And and that's going to be the primary driver. But the the real skill comes when you start looking at how you optimize that process. And that's about data and about optimizing the campaign. And so, you know, people like Eric Suffer are kind of brilliant at this. Um, And they basically look at, um, you know, what is it in terms of the positioning and layering? So, you might come up with, like, here's my trailer. Okay. I might have three or four different versions of the background showing gameplay or i might have real people or i might have some other and i will test which of those works best i'll test of those at which work best where the positioning of the message will be what the messages will be themselves what color the buttons will be and in fact what i'll probably end up doing is have an array of those so i can run campaigns in different places with different audiences that have different responses, that becomes very sophisticated when you do that. But again, yeah. if you want to simplify it, it's like pull together an ad which communicates an aspiration um, and, and a desire and a fear of missing out of that game. Um, yeah. There's a piece of work yeah. that was done by uh, marketing psycho- well psychologists and marketing people took on uh, called consumer behavior as need. Sorry, oh sorry, got it wrong. So comp- consumer behavior as risk. It's risk, not need. So if you think about consumer behavior as risk, yeah. so I'm going to go buy a pair of jeans. Well, I have to want it. I have to desire that pair of jeans. And if I see a label yeah. on it that says fifty uh, percent off, limited time period, I now have a reason to act because I've got a fear of missing out on that deal. And if those genes yeah. look pretty good, mm-hmm. if I think my friends will think I look good in them, then I've got a social capital in getting those genes. There's a value in doing that. Yeah. But there's one piece of the puzzle you have no control over. And we use the, I'm using the term abnegation to describe it. Now, all abnegation is is a fancy way of saying the things I ought to be doing instead. So I've got that pair of jeans over there. Well, I look at my bank balance. Do I have the money for it? I look at my, my you know, other things I should be spending that money on. If I do not set aside the other things I need to do, I'm not buying those jeans. Yeah. The only thing yeah. we can do as if we're not manipulating and stuff like that which, which always fails in the long run but, uh, and don't do it, just don't do it. But if I do it properly I, the aspiration of wanting those jeans, the fear of missing out and the social value of those genes, so what they look like, the quality of them, they give me enough motivation to overcome my reason to not naturally act. And your ad needs to do that. It needs to create a stimulus that creates anticipation, desire, and social values that allows me to overcome my natural resistance because there are other things I should be doing instead. That's what an ad needs to communicate.
1: Reason to act now we're at 50 minutes and uh i've um i'm actually okay. having one more question and that is there are so many gaming events and um a lot of times i'm seeing the same in these uh, going to all the events so it's actually a 2 question um one should you go to events and two, which events would you actually advise uh, as a small gaming development company to actually appear, uh, to be there, I mean, to pitch? Which events would you reckon are well, best? Well,
0: that's, uh, that's an interesting, long question um, in the current climate, <laughs> seeing as I'm sat at home uh, self-isolating. Um, but actually, this, 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 so, so right now, um, there are fantastic events i 'm going to have to talk about pocket gamer digital for example um so i 'm helping uh, lucky i 've got the uh, I helped the guys out with the speaker lineup for that event um, and uh, but, you know pocket gamer is uh, very close to my heart i think i 've only missed one and that was because I had a uh, had my appendix out a few weeks before um, but uh, yeah. yeah it was its pocket gamer I, I love it i think it's, it, the guys have done an amazing job of creating a community of people who are spread between the kind of high-end professional kind of like massive companies and also the indie and the people starting out it's got that blend um there if it depends on what you're trying to do so if you want talks an event like that is great um because you have some of the best people in the world who are limited to a 20 minute slot now that sounds like it's not enough and it isn't enough for long in-depth things. But what it does is it means you see more people talking about something and they distill their key message into a very short period of time. And I think that's yeah. incredibly effective because you get to learn a huge amount. I love sitting and hosting those events, mostly because it makes me sound clever because I can listen to everybody and, and, and learn it all, but also because I get yeah. to sort of be part of the debate. And so as you have panels talking about user acquisition you can learn about how people are now using kind of programmatic bidding and that you know they're using the header information to understand who they're going which particular um individuals they're going to send a particular ad to that kind of stuff is so sophisticated yeah. and fantastic wouldn't have dreamed it was possible 10 years ago but now it is um the, the other thing is that it's what you're going for so an event like Pocket Game, or Casual Connect or White Knights or whatever, <coughs> they all have different reasons to be there. So if you're an indie, going to somewhere that's got something like a big indie pitch, um, that could be incredible because you can get to have somebody review your game and understand you know, what they think of it, their, their professional response. <coughs> and if you're lucky, maybe you even win. And you got something to yeah. talk about, yeah. Um, Visibility. Visibility, but you're also you're in a community of other people going through the same process. So that kind of stuff is <laughs> sorry, <coughs> I just drank some water the wrong way. Um, no, so no, yeah, no, no, it's I'm fine. I'm not sick. Um, <laughs> so um, being in that community is really good. If you're more professional, you know, kind of professional organization, which you've got more of a track record. Not saying indie's aren't professional, but if you've got a professional structure we've got repeatable you know income um then you're probably more talking about the kind of business that we're going to to talk about uh you know which partners to use what's the best way you can get the best uh data what's the best way you can connect with the right people of course there's the opportunities around fundraising and talking to investors but also you know opportunities around you know identifying companies who you might want to acquire, for example. So all these events are incredibly powerful. And all that's great. But it's actually about making the friends in the networking events who you can talk to frankly about what's necessary. And when you move on from that, you can go further because down the line, when you've connected with people, um, they will all You'll, you see a lot people come in and go for the, for the industry events and, and industry itself, but generally you find a core of people like yourself who we see, at, you know, we see each other at you know, multiple events during the year and there'll be something where I need to know something and you'll be the guy who I need to know it from. Yeah. And I can go to yeah. you and you already know who I am, you already know why I'm asking and you're going to be much more willing and interested in the results of that. And that, yeah. I think, is the reason for going to yeah. events. It's the ability to network, connect, and actually engage and be part of an industry which you love and be able to be more effective at. So finding events that work for you, I think yeah. the local events um, can be amazing. Um, particularly, they may be smaller, but they often will have people in your community who you can engage with. Um, I think the events like, you know, obviously GBC is not happening right now. I, I should be there right now, doing it, but I'm not. Um, yeah. no. so they're great um, and amazing learning opportunities. But you need to work out and pace yourself. At Unity, I was doing an average of 42 events a year. I was travelling to 30 countries a year. <laughs> That's not yeah. sane. But it was my job. Most game developers don't And oh, no, it's do They need to find... You know, the ones they need to go to to make the connections they need. So, if you need to find an event to talk to people in Europe, go to Gamescom, go to Pocket Gamer London, go to Pocket Gamer Helsinki, go to White Knight. Find the right one for you. Um, But also don't ignore the smaller events in your local community.
1: What are you doing today? What are you doing today? today?
0: I am working on the strategy for a new company, which I can't quite talk about yet. So we've been doing some <laughs> fundraising so uh, for uh, a new company. Yeah. Um, basically, we're going to be focusing more on supporting teams uh, from concept to live ops, but particularly around the live ops side. So um, you hopefully will be hearing a lot
1: more about live ops as a service. Cool. cool. So Great. Keep your posted. We. Um... I actually the uh, 30 minutes and we said like after 30 minutes, I would say 30 minutes, but you know, I, I really found this very interesting and uh, um, this is, this is very helpful for people that are at the beginnings of what might be their, their, yeah, their, a major company or a, company or a company that just has a lot of fun, makes good money. Um, I think today there there's a lot of, People that actually want to get involved in gaming. Um, The the numerous questions I get via email or LinkedIn. um, It's it's really fun to see everyone being so enthusiastic. Exactly. So yeah, it's 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 exactly this what I want to do with my podcast. It's it's giving people some thoughts, and then obviously um, I'll uh, I'll put a link uh, to your LinkedIn. So that people can ask you uh, more questions and and no, great. I want and to thank I you for really this. Really
0: appreciate. It. I, I I need to do this anyway, and I was I was planning to look at Anchor because I know the the um, um deconstructor fun guys use it. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and like I say, anytime, just let me know. I, I'm happy, always yeah. happy to help. Cool. cool. Right, mate. Take care.
1: Thanks a lot. See you cool. <laughs> You too. I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview with Oscar and Oscar, thank you very much. Um, it's an hour and uh, so it's Thursday, the 19th of March. Um, I hope everyone is safe uh, with their families at home. Uh, please be safe and stay safe. Um, on Sunday, there is a new episode. In that episode, I have a Nordic game with Jakob and Teddy. I have my company's watch list back again and some other things, most likely. I'm still prepping. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I hope you will share this podcast with your gaming friends. I'm going to end this. (laughs) Ciao for now.
0: This was all for today. Thanks so much for listening to Game Consultant. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. And remember, do share this podcast with other members of
1: the games industry.